So welcome to the Do More Good podcast, season three. All good things come in threes, don't they, Kenny? Of course they do. Three musketeers, little pigs, triangles, your degree. <laughs> we should probably know what we're doing by now, right? You'd think so. There are times you have to step away from that and do the bigger, scarier, crunchier, harder work because it pays off in the end. Making sure that the senior people from that organisation get involved with the partnership. It's not scary. The worst thing that can happen is that someone can go, bloody hell, that was a bit of a cock-up. Do I've had a few folk not from Scotland that have said to me, I didn't know you could do that with bagpipes. <laughs> I think the, the message is... Do more good. Yeah! So here we are, James, episode 25 of the Do More Good podcast. How are you? I'm doing okay, Kenneth. I'm doing all right. Um, yeah. Or at least I was until I saw an exchange on Twitter last night. Oh, really? There was a girl and she said, what are, what's the worst thing that a guy can say to you on a date? And somebody else replied and said, I'm setting up a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that well, hurt me. Hopefully, you've never said that. Uh, how's it, how you been then? What's been going on? Yeah, good. We're, we're, we're quite busy. We've um, we've obviously had a little break in between season two and three, mm. but it's good to be back. This is season three. Season three. They've given us another yeah. another series. Right. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm just recovering from uh, the Vitality Big Half we had at the weekend. A uh, bit of a crazy day in terms of the weather, but all the runners seem to enjoy it. But I think one of the things that I took away from it. It was just great seeing the behind the scenes of a big operation such as that. Like all the infrastructure and all the planning and everything that went, in, went into it was pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah, I'm feeling encouraged and ready to go. Hope, hoping the summer's going to arrive soon, though, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's been cold this been week. A bit chilly. Yeah. So we have a guest with us today. After completing her law degree in law and politics at Exeter University, our guest worked as a political researcher in Parliament, providing support on international development issues and human rights for a junior minister. Following that, she went, and work, went to work for a corporate affairs consultancy, uh, working within the pharmaceutical companies, another organisation, advising on public affairs. And after three years, she joined Age Concern. So following the, the merger of Help the Aged and Age Concern, our guest held senior roles in the new charity Age UK, leading on public affairs and their high-profile campaigns in the UK and internationally. So after joining Alzheimer's Research UK's senior leadership team in July 2013, firstly as Director of External Affairs, she was then made CEO of the organisation in May 2015, around the same time that I started actually, so I didn't have anything to do with it, Uh, but a fantastic and inspiring individual, we're pleased to be joined by Hilary Evans. Hilary, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, good to be here. Welcome. Thank you. Great to see you. So can we start a little bit at the beginning with, well, tell us a bit about your background, your journey to becoming a CEO of one of the fastest growing UK charities. Okay, yeah, sure, yeah. I guess uh, I guess where it sort of began for me with the voluntary sector is your uh, introduction to kind of my background and my, my sort of CV. Um, so I worked in corporate affairs, um, had a sort of background in Westminster, and I worked for a consultancy. Most of our clients were big corporates, so I learned a lot by working with them, but probably didn't hugely enjoy that. I think there was a sort of lack of reward for me. And so we had some pro bono clients, sort of medium and small charities. So I ended up doing quite a bit of work for them. 
uh, to the point that I was probably spending more time working for the charities than I was for the big fee-paying clients. Um, so I think that probably taught me something. Um, and so then a role came up with Age Concern and I sort of leapt for that in terms of an opportunity to do something where I felt there was more reward, but also uh, a huge issue at the time and still is, you know, massively ageing population, um, chance to join a, an organisation that had a huge breadth of policy issues. And so I guess for me, that's sort of my introduction to the voluntary sector and an interest in kind of older people's issues. And that then, I guess, led me on to a role at Alzheimer's Research UK. So I'd worked on on dementia more broadly for a number of years, particularly on the care side, but um, Age UK, that Age Concern then became, did do some biomedical research at the time. Um, so I was involved in a number of those projects. And I guess from a personal perspective, I had three grandparents who had Alzheimer's disease a long time ago, but all died in sort of mid-90s. And I think for me, there was a frustration that actually what we were trying to do from a care perspective AGK wasn't really getting anywhere and still isn't in terms of sort of funding, driving up quality of, of social care in the UK. But there wasn't really any organisation that was focused on medical research. So we had, you know, Cancer Research UK and lots of other fantastic research organisations for other disease areas and conditions. And I was working in the sector and hadn't really heard of Alzheimer's Research UK. So I'd, I'd worked a little bit with Alzheimer's Society and we had, I think, done one or two events with Alzheimer's Research UK. But actually, at the time, I think they didn't then have the impact I thought that they could have. So for me, joining them was an opportunity to see what I could do with the charity and I guess to give me a sort of a senior role in a smaller organisation, having come from a, probably one of the biggest charities in the UK. And what, what was the size of Alzheimer's Research UK when you, when you joined? I think I was number 38 in terms wow. of uh, okay. employees. So really small. I think we just moved to a new office on a science park south of Cambridge. Before that, they were in an old stable block and there was about 12 of them. So we just started building to the team. They had an, an interim CEO in at the time who came in with a view to actually building a senior team. So David Mayhew, who's still our chairman today, just joined as chair. So he then wanted to bring in a senior leadership team. So at the time, there had been no real directors at all. So the board decided to look for a director of fundraising, who's Ian Wilson, who um, still still works with us now, who's, who's absolutely fantastic from Cancer Research UK, and then a scientific director that they brought in from industry. And then myself as director of external affairs, so I sort of picked up everything from communications, our sort of health services, uh, a little bit around kind of running the charity itself. So pretty much everything that's outside of sort of fundraising and research and the three of us pretty much between us went from there to building a new strategy for the organization within about two months and did you see that as kind of leaving uh, age age uk as it was at the time and moving to what you've just described as quite a small organization sounds like there wasn't a lot of infrastructure in place necessarily was can you remember how did you feel at that time and w- were you quite daunted or excited and all of the above yeah, i guess yeah probably yeah I, I mean i think it was exciting in terms of Actually, you had a fairly blank canvas to work from. I think you had a charity that had big ambitions but didn't really know how to get there. And I, I felt I could bring a lot from what I'd learned at, at Age Concern and Age UK in terms of the way they'd operated, but actually bring a lot in terms of some of the things that I maybe wouldn't want to replicate from a large charity who, you know, they've been around for a long time. Age UK is obviously a, an organisation that formed from a charity of two large uh, charities. 
but were still probably going through the kind of post-merger sort of teething stages of what they're trying to do. So that was quite interesting itself. So I could sort of maybe apply some of the work that I'd done around creating a new organisation with AGK post-merger to ultimately basically creating a new organisation in what has become Alzheimer's Research UK. And these, Obviously recruiting these, um, me. These, uh, <laughs> these biographies keep getting more and more daunting every time that we read through them. But obviously talking about your one, you came from outside the sector and you mentioned other people there that also came from outside the sector. That You're not weighed down by this is how we've always done it and this is how the sector works. You're bringing private sector experience and a, and a little bit of knowledge from what you've done in the past and putting that together. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that has been really helpful. And I think as we've built the senior team within Alzheimer's Research UK, we have looked for people who've got a broad range of experience. And I do think that's really important. And I guess I sort of saw the voluntary sector from working with corporates. So I worked with pharmaceutical companies on their corporate affairs. So did a lot in terms of access to new medicines, particularly around cancer or diabetes. So then you work for patient groups very closely. And I'd worked in government. So ultimately, I was lobbied by lots of different charities. So UK charities, international charities. I led some of the international affairs work of, of AGK, working with some of the big international aid charities. It was quite interesting, I guess, seeing the different dynamic from all of those perspectives. And I think then trying to bring that into a charity has been has been interesting, I guess, for me personally in terms of what we can achieve. But I think having seen the charities on the other side, you see what's worked and what hasn't worked. But having said that, you know, that was that was a fair few years ago. And I think that, you know, the sector continues to change and evolve. And it's a very different sector now to the one in sort of early 2000s that I was probably lobbied by in government. Yeah, you've got that. You mentioned that kind of 360 view of, of how everything fits together. And then also there's an element of this being your project and your thing that you've, you've grown and you've seen evolve as you've been at the helm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I had, I had a, a baby uh, almost two years ago and a lot of people were sort of saying, well, how are you going to sort of manage with, you know, being on maternity leave or having a child ending this? And, and in my view, it was sort of like I have two babies. I've got Alzheimer's Research UK <laughs> and then I've got a baby here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some, um, of them, some of them misbehave after <laughs> bedtime. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly be kind of. Yeah, so I guess for me, it's, it's, it's having that, an organisation that is far more than just a job. But I think it's also, it's, you know, I've, I've helped create what Alzheimer's Research UK is today, but it's by no means just me. And, and actually, probably the biggest thing for me is, is having the right team and having a fantastic group of people to do this. And so, you know, a lot of what we're doing now within the organisation is really trying to build on that culture that I hope we brought five and a half years ago and have have built on and and that really is about creating leaders at every stage of the organisation and acknowledging the role that everyone within the organisation plays and that's from our board of trustees all the way down to people who may be sort of starting out in their first jobs within the organisation so for me that's that's quite a key. Yeah and you talk about people starting out in the organisation there did you always have ambitions to be CEO and to to get there or did something change as you were there and thought I can do this I'm going to go for it what was that decision like? Yeah, I no, I didn't. I didn't have any kind of grand plan. Um, and almost from leaving university, there was no particular grand plan. I think that I'd always been someone who'd been drawn to trying to doing do something useful. I guess that's ultimately why people go into politics to affect change. So I, f- I, I guess as a sort of personal drive, there was always something where I wanted to be 
in a role that I could do that. And ultimately, being chief exec, you then really can drive change. But um, but within Alzheimer's Research UK, you know, I joined as a, as a director and I was really thrilled to get that position and to be working with the team that I was working with. And, it, you know, part circumstances and a bit of luck, I guess, that a, a role came up. Um, there was a period where we then didn't have a chief exec. So actually, as a team of senior directors, we pretty much pulled together and continued to run the organisation. And I guess within that time, I... Sort of, naturally took on some of the role that you might expect from a chief exec and you know made clear to the board that I was quite enjoying doing that and it was something that actually I was keen to be able to do if I had the opportunity yeah. and then and that I was then given that opportunity which is fantastic but I was always very clear that it was you know I was leading then a really fantastic team and that wasn't just sort of one appointment actually you had to really acknowledge the role of my you know co-directors in in yeah, what we've done course, over that period course. yeah um, so for people kind of early on in their careers, maybe just look at the next step on that ladder. Don't necessarily think about where you might end up and see what evolves and what happens with your Yeah, career. I mean, I think you just have, and you have to make the most of whatever the opportunities are there and whatever the job you're doing. So I'm not someone who's been particularly interested in sort of job titles or, um, you know, hopefully don't have sort of too much of an ego in terms of kind of what I'm doing and what That's my role is. That's where we're is. going wrong, Kenneth. <laughs> 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 I can possibly comment. But I think then actually if, if you're just able to do a good job in what you're doing and you enjoy what you're doing, then actually the opportunities do then often come up. And I think that sometimes people get a little bit too obsessed with, you know, what mm. the job title might be and what that position might look like. And, and I'm much more interested in what someone's actually able to do and create. Um, and the ultimately, I think, particularly in this sector, the, the impact you then have. So I think I'll probably know the answer to this after you just asked, answered that last question. But that day when you made were made CEO and you came into the office and that title, I know that probably didn't mean a lot to you at the time because you were probably operating, but it does come with a certain level of, I don't know, acknowledgement and respect and kudos. What was that first day like for you personally? Do you remember feeling how you felt at that time? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is, it's quite a privilege to have, that role um, in any organization but I think particularly in a charity I guess there's a sort of awesome responsibility that goes with it and it's that responsibility for your employees and the people that you're working with your supporters the beneficiaries from the charity that you're then trying to deliver something for I don't think there's probably a day that I don't feel a bit of that weight on my shoulder I think that's only right but I think for me it's also I get quite a lot of energy and a bit of a buzz from that. So, you know, for me, I think that's probably what drives me as much as something else. So, so yeah, it was exciting. I think it, what was nice is um, I think a sort of communication went out within the office is then actually lots of people kind of coming up to me and sending me notes back and being really excited about it and what we we're able to do. And so I, I think Kenneth for me, that's left you an apple or something, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Straight there knocking on the door. <laughs> Can just imagine You know me it. too well. <laughs> You know me too well. No, I think actually just reflecting on that time myself, so I hadn't been with the organisation very you long. You just joined us, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, relatively new. I think I remember having a kind of session with you when yeah, you were still yeah. in your old role, yeah. and then the kind of announcement was made. And as you kind of referred to, we'd been without a CEO and a, a kind of figurehead for a little while, and so actually that appointment and actually someone that we all knew and could connect with and understood their, their ethos and their character it was actually really encouraging for the organisation, I think, at the time, rather than, for example, someone being, you know, parachuted in and saying, OK, here's your new, new CEO. So that, that seemed to work really well, at least from my experience. That um, was good to hear. 
Yeah, maybe I haven't shared that. I should have shared that previously. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, internal challenges and how that's worked. Externally, facing dementia as a whole, that's a huge challenge for you guys. What are you doing at AR UK at the moment? Uh, well, you're right, yeah. It, it's an enormous challenge. So we often describe dementia as being one of the greatest health challenges that societies face. And it, and it certainly is. And we've got a condition where at the moment we do not have anything that treats this disease, anything that can prevent it. What Alzheimer's Research UK's main focus on is to deliver for people a intervention that will then change the course of this disease. Uh, and so in order to do that, we've then looked at what Alzheimer's Research UK can do maybe differently. I think that this disease was first diagnosed in 1906 and at the moment we can offer patients with Alzheimer's disease very li little difference to what we did then and I think that for me is a big motivator in terms of actually things really do need to change and we have not seen the progress in research that we've seen in other disease areas but we've seen nowhere near the level of investment so for us you know as a medical research charity who are purely relying on public support and donations to do what we do there has had to be a huge drive in terms of investing in good quality science in this area but also looking at how we can uh, accelerate the pace of progress much faster than maybe we've seen in other disease areas and so for us this has been a big challenge in terms of the science and actually we're starting to see some of the results of that now which is fantastic but we've also got a big challenge in terms of the way that people view dementia and there's still a lot of stigma around the disease people weren't talking about it and so actually a big responsibility of this charity and a focus for us has been around public awareness of Alzheimer's disease and so there's been a big focus on how we can communicate the devastating impact of the disease but actually above all give people hope that we will be able to treat this disease and that dementia is caused by a disease it's not an inevitable part of aging. Well, whether it's your work or, or, you know, as part of others, it certainly feels like it's part of the conversation now. It's it's out there more over the last, let's say, couple of years, maybe. I, I, I mean, know. I guess you know that from your your work at a charity as well. I mean, I'm sure from Sue Ryder being a hospice and care. Well, we, yeah, obviously we we see you guys, but you don't know whether you're within your kind of Twitter echo chamber mm. that's reflective reflected rather in society. I don't know, but it feels that way. It mm. certainly feels like more people are having the conversation about mental health as a whole and, and dementia especially. I'd probably like to move on a little bit just a bit more about kind of culture and about ARUK and about your role as the, the kind of figurehead of that organisation. We're hearing a lot at the moment about organisations needing to be flexible to allow people to really be the best that they can be and really deliver on, on what that organisation needs to do. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how flexibility potentially manifests itself at ARUK. Are there any other approaches that you've seen maybe outside the sector that you think are interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think flexibility is hugely important and I think it comes down to having a very adult relationship with your employees and your team and trusting people to deliver on what they need to deliver. And I think my attitude has always been, actually, we all have a responsibility to deliver it in whatever role that is and... I don't mind quite how people do that and when they do that. So in terms of kind of flexibility around the hours that people work or the locations that people work, we try and be as flexible as possible within the kind of parameters as to what works for us in terms of kind of making good business sense. But I think that 
the reward that people get back for a small amount of flexibility is is very high. Um, and I think that any employer who doesn't see flexibility as a sort of positive thing for their business um, is increasingly out of touch with the way that people work. And I think we have to acknowledge that everyone works in a different way and you'll get the best out of different people by being a bit flexible as to, as to how they work. So when we have you know, quite a flexible policy in terms of how we work, in terms of flexibility around homeworking, you know, we're an organisation based near Cambridge, not everyone lives within Cambridge or, or immediate um, radius of the office so actually we need to be flexible about that but I think it's also about acknowledging the other responsibilities and roles that people have and you know mm. we're an organisation who are working on on dementia and actually we know the number of people who have caring responsibilities around dementia or other other conditions that mean that actually they need some flexibility in work and I think that we need to as an organisation be a bit of a cheerleader in doing that mm. um, and the same goes for people who've got young families and supporting them to work in whatever way that they can so we've I've always made sure you know long before I had children that we were being as flexible as possible in terms of how people worked how people returned to work after having a period of of leave looking after young children and is there anything that you've seen outside in terms of in a bit of because I think as the as you touched on, James, sometimes the kind of the charity, the voluntary sector can be a bit of an incubator and we're kind of very internally facing and looking at how, who's been flexible, who isn't. But is there anything that you've seen outside of the sector where you're like, maybe that's the way that we'd like to head or maybe some interesting ideas or concepts that you, you'd consider? Yeah, and I think, about? It's, you know, I, th- I do think it's really important that you, you, we all look outside of the sector. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, some of the best ideas come from looking at what other people are doing and I think we can t- probably take an element of what some different businesses have done in terms of their approach but it has to fit what you're trying to do and what your culture is so yeah. you know one of the pieces of work that we've done recently is around the leadership attributes of Alzheimer's Research UK so actually what does it mean to be a leader within Alzheimer's Research UK what, how do we want to work what kind of culture do we want to create and so that we're creating our own culture rather than maybe just sort of looking to someone else in another company and saying, yes, we sort of want to copy the way that they work because actually yeah. that might not work for who we are and what we're trying to do. Mm. And I think that, you know, we are in lots of ways quite a young organisation. You know, the sort of average age of our employees is about 30. And for a lot of people, it's their first or second jobs. Mm. So the way that they want to work and the sorts of companies and organisations they would look to as being the, you know the best places to work might be quite different than than other charities with maybe a different sort of demographic so mm. you know I think people look to sort of the tech sector and social media companies but actually and we've had conversations with lots and there's some things that they do really well but actually the for me I don't think they're half as flexible or innovative as they often position themselves no, to be right. so there's a reason yeah. why lots of these companies have you know, sleep chambers and they've got toothbrushes in the bathroom and that's because staff often don't go home. <laughs> um, and so for me, you know, I don't want the organisation to be like that where you're just sort of draining every bit of energy out of every employee on a day-to-day basis to the point where actually they kind of have enough of you. Yeah. Actually, it's about supporting people in their whole life and actually what I think we find is that Alzheimer's Research UK as is, is a, is a job and I think I hope you feel the same way, Kenneth, actually becomes more than maybe just your day job and actually is a big part of who you are and what you do. Yeah. And so that then actually the reward that we get back as an organisation is much higher. And obviously that doesn't work for everyone, yeah, but I think yeah, that's yeah. where we'd want to get to. I think you said that doesn't work for everyone. Everyone I've ever met who's worked for AIUK has always seemed enthused and passionate and committed. And it's more than just a day job 
for them that the morale seems really high. How do you how do you create that sense of a, a, a gang culture that we're you know we're all in this together and we're and we're striving for the same aims? Well, that's nice to hear, I guess. Firstly, but you know, I put quite a lot of focus in terms of people, and for me, I think you know, people in relationships are really key to whoever you are and whatever job you're doing, and so you know, we can't do anything without the support of a team and I think we're asking people to join us as sort of team AIEK or supporters or give us money or our scientists to actually you know we put a huge amount of hope and and responsibility on what they're trying to deliver and so actually if they don't see the people at Alzheimer's Research UK as having a fantastic sort of ethos and being enthusiastic and being passionate about what we do we can't hope for anyone else to have the same and I think that you know, there's, there's an element where we've sort of started small and been able to sort of grow that culture. Mm. And I think that's quite nice. It's also, you know, we've, I didn't join a big organisation that I then had to try and turn around. Actually, it's sort of five and a half years ago, we were able to sort of be an organisation where digital was just becoming more and more prominent. And we could maybe get on board with some of the new ways of working much quicker than other organisations and allow us to maybe bring that culture to the forefront a little bit faster um, but I think it's ultimately just making it a priority and mm. making sure that actually they know that people in a senior role in the organisation see the team as the most important thing of what we do because it's almost easy I was gonna no, I was just gonna say I mean it's I don't mean this to say it's easy but it's almost a little bit more simple and straightforward when you're a certain size of organisation when you're getting going as you described you when you joined the organisation it was kind of still relatively small you were at the start of that journey and then you could kind of have a major input into what the culture then become. I guess the question then comes is how do you scale that culture? And I don't know if any, I don't know, certainly don't know any answers, but have you had any thoughts on how you can maintain that team ethic, that work and that drive that you all, that you'd referred to James, which I definitely felt being part of the organisation, but then hopefully over the years to come as the organisation continues to raise more to battle against dementia and, and raise the funds, how do you maintain that? Have you had any thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's something that I've been thinking about over the last year or two, certainly, because we're now almost 170 employees. Wow. Uh, you know, not everyone is based in the office at all. You know, we're increasingly more regional teams, particularly our fundraisers, uh, real growth in our sort of regional corporate team. So actually, how do we ensure that everyone understands what that culture of Alzheimer's Research UK is? So we've done some work on trying to illustrate that and are rolling out a leadership development course across the organization so at the moment all of our managers are going through that but eventually the entire organization will um, we try and make sure that we have sort of time within the day for people to just be together so we have sort of snack and chat sessions a couple of times a week where we provide sort of fresh fruit and biscuits and literally have space in our we've got sort of cafe areas within the office just to try and bring people together. Um, you know, we have a sort of Friday mingle once a month to try and do that. Actually, we've got quite a social culture uh, as much as we can do within the organisation. I think that's then really important. And actually, that, that I guess that culture comes from people having a sense and purpose about what we're trying to do. And so it then has to come back to you. You can have all these sort of nice, nice things in the office and a kind of opportunities for people to get together and be sociable and some fantastic sort of HR initiatives but actually unless people are really clear about what it is they're trying to achieve I don't think you get there so I guess for me then the main drive is actually about having 
a really clear purpose and everyone understanding where we're trying to get to. And so I think people are really excited about our research initiatives. Mm. I think they're really behind our scientists. And I think they really do feel a great sense of kind of responsibility, but of hope in terms of what we're then trying to achieve and want to then be a part of it. Mm. And I suppose that's where internal communications becomes key as you continue to grow is making sure that message. How does your organisation... Uh, like yeah, we're, so we're culture. very similar in that we have a lot of people working from home as well and, and yeah. people working across different sites and you're trying to keep everybody on board. You haven't got everybody in the same room. So you yeah. can't gauge the mood of the room very easily. You can't get everybody together for a pep talk and a, I don't know, a bit of a G up on a Monday morning. You've got to do that in other ways. So mm. it's interesting you're talking about people working from home and from different sites. Uh, but also, I found really interesting you talk about the, the people doing the research for you and supporters as one and that you're all in this for the same reasons and keeping everybody as part of one team rather than everybody having their own separate roles that's I've got a bit of a thought on it I've got a bit of a here thought here we go so <laughs> here we go we've been saving this one in the bag so one of the one of the thoughts that I have is that I think people should speak more, right? You talk about maintaining culture by having people connecting with each other, spending time, whether it be socially in the office or whatever, or talking. Yet we still see in so many organisations the over reliance on email and communicating by instant message or whatever, where we know that the history has told us that the the message often gets lost or misinterpreted. Yet people still don't pick up the phone. And I think one of the gripes that I have at the moment is now working across a range of charities that actually getting hold of people on the phone isn't as easy as it maybe once was. Kenneth is, Kenneth is the only person that ever calls me. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a caller. You are? I am. I yeah. am a, I'd rather speak to my friends and uh, people on the phone, but maybe that's just me. Agree or not agree? Disagree? I think communication is really important. I guess people have different preferences. So there are the people who want to be on the end of the phone and they want to be chatting. And yeah, of course. So I, I, I guess it then comes down to ensuring that people are, who are maybe slightly more introverted, who maybe don't feel as comfortable in that situation, have got the ability to hear different views and be part of different conversations. So I guess it's finding different ways of doing that. So one of the things we've introduced this year is, is Yammer, so like a sort of social media platform within the organization that's been massively popular and it's full of sort of wacky gifts and whatever else and 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 it's quite good fun it's not really you know i wouldn't say it's kind of monitored in any way it's people are sharing all sorts of information about what they're up to but that's been really really successful Mm. and actually what it does is sort of sets off conversations then within the office and allows people then say, oh, I saw that thing that you then posted or something you might have done at the weekend. Or, um, and so I think those things are quite helpful. But certainly I think it, you need to create that time where you bring people to, together, together. And, and actually just know who you're working with as well. Yeah. And I think that you know, my, the relationships that I've got with you know, people across the organisation, particularly the, sort of the senior team, you know, we are in contact all the time yeah. uh, and that's that's really important um, and some of that's just a conversations often you know Ian and I work incredibly closely together and we try and get out for lunch a couple of times a week and yeah. have conversations via WhatsApp or wherever else about what we're doing and I think that you know if, we, if you don't have that then actually you've, you've then got maybe a set of senior leaders who aren't then all speaking as one and I think that's where you have problems as yeah. well and look, I'm not look, I'm not saying <laughs> people don't just have to phone me now if anyone wants to send me an email like everyone will be picking up the phone oh you said this but 
but yeah, okay. We, I do that on a, like on a really basic level. I love sitting with my team, and I think that's really important to sit with, with my gang. But also, I go on a bit of a desk safari. We have a hot desking system, so mm. I do a bit of a desk safari every week where I'll sit in different places in the office, deliberately picking yeah. to sit next to other people. And I like that desk just safari. Just yeah, safari. that's, that's my own. I, cool. I came up with that one. Uh, but you, merch, know, you know, merch. I, I was sat with the, uh, the marketing team for a day, or maybe the day team, yeah. or whoever. But... The, at, one, at some point during that day that I'm sat with them, I will either overhear something or have a conversation about something that I wouldn't have had. Even it's just getting to know people. So when I'm yeah. desperate for them to fix something for me on a Thursday afternoon, I'm not suddenly just appearing at their desk and they have no idea who I am. I'm the annoying guy that was sat next to them two days ago. You know, so, Hilary, we'd like to talk a little bit more broadly about this, the sector. And it generally, I think at the moment, appears to be quite buoyant, exciting. There's a lot of innovation going on across the spectrum. How do you see the kind of immediate and long-term future of, of the sector? And I appreciate that's quite a big, bold question. But is there anything that you're, you've been thinking or maybe your team's been thinking about? Uh, probably the, the voluntary sector has got probably one of the most important roles, kind of societal roles uh, now, possibly than it's ever had. And I think that part of that is the reliance that people have on charities but I think also um, you know, charities are driving new ways of doing things and new ways of kind of engagement across kind of issues that haven't really had the attention or been talked about and and, and ensuring that then other people then play their part and I think you're seeing that in terms of the way that I guess sort of a key theme in terms of how how the volunteer sector is engaging with with corporates, and I think that you know that's changed quite a lot. You know, we, we're moving away from the, the sort of charity of the year towards the sort of strategic partnerships, where you know corporates have a really clear agenda as to what they want to achieve, but actually a lot of the time they can't achieve that on their own, and they then need a volunteer sector partner to be able to do that. And, and I think that's for me that's really interesting. So it's no longer just just sort of corporate social responsibility budgets being sort of doled out to some nice projects and um, you know sort of very practical projects actually I think that they then have a different responsibility and actually what they understand is that their their employees want to see this their customers want to see this their boards want to see this investors want Mm. to see this Um, and so that then creates quite a different sense through the organization so it's no longer just having that sort of, you know, literal third sector as a sort of third leg propped over there to sort of support the public sector and the private sector. Actually, you know, the third sector is then in sort of integral across both sort of public and private sector. And I think then in the way that, you know, organisations are being more innovative in terms of how they're providing services is really interesting. But I think then in terms of how we're having conversations around things that maybe weren't talked about before but that that charities can have that conversation to start with and then corporates and others then want to sort of you're seeing them wanting to come in behind and wanting to be part of that and i don't think we saw that 10 years ago yeah it's interesting you're echoing what what uh, was said on our corporate episode recently the guys were talking about the synergy between private sector aims and and the charity sector as well and finding alliances that maybe last longer than a year because both companies are looking yeah 10 years down the line rather than and I mean, I guess from a fundraising perspective, I mean, and we're, we're, we're all sitting here, I guess, as, as fundraisers and um, the majority of our audience, at least the, those that we know about, seem all to be... All three of them. All three of them <laughs> seem to be uh, from the fundraising discipline. Is there kind of anything that you're seeing in terms of fundraising? That, what are the important areas in that? Do you th- do you, what do you see the future of that? 
I mean, I think that, um, you know, fundraising continues to be a challenging area, I think, for most organisations. But what you do see, I think, is people being quite innovative in terms of where they're looking to grow their fundraising income. And I think that we'll probably continue to see that. And I think that then this is about, and I guess in some way we're talking about sort of sort of corporates, but actually, you know, the, the overlap between maybe the kind of historical areas of fundraising is probably greater, but then the reliance on our sort of broader sort of brand positioning and marketing is really, really key. So I guess for me, you know, I'm someone who probably always has a more holistic view of fundraising. And actually, you know, we always talk at Alzheimer's Research UK and everyone in this organisation is a fundraiser. Um, that certainly hasn't been the case in other organisations I've worked in where things have been quite siloed and the fundraising team maybe sort of sat over there and not central to the role that the charity plays. Whereas I think that you know, more and more actually that has to be key. Um, and I think you're then seeing organisations who maybe have historically been um, you know, sort of grant-based organisations delivering services, moving to think actually we need to now have a sort of fundraising strategy and w- what is then our positioning and offering. And I think that that's then, you know, I think that's going to be a big challenge for the sector, particularly for some smaller organisations in how they then position themselves and have the sort of confidence to get out there and have those sort of conversations. Uh, you know, at a time where I think, you know, we're seeing sort of some of the changes in, in the way that we can talk to people and mm. some of the, the sort of regulations that we now have mean that those conversations have to be a little bit different. But I think, I guess the other the other thing for me is that for fundraising, it really has to be quite impact-led in terms of what we're doing. And I think that you know, impact probably means different things to different organisations. And I don't necessarily think anyone's got this right. And it's something that we are putting a lot of focus on over the next year or so. But actually demonstrating that impact has got to be key. And unless you can really do that with authority, I don't think you'll be able to grow your fundraising in the way that most organisations would need to. Okay. That's good. You talked there about having a holistic view is quite, it's, it's quite key. Are there other, kind of, I would say that's, that's pretty important as a good leader. Are there any other attributes that you would, not necessarily talking about yourself, not asking you to blow your own trumpet, there are things that you find are quite key to being a good, or there are things that you aim for as being a good leader? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I think ultimately to be a good leader, you need to have a clear vision of what you're trying to achieve and purpose behind that. But I think you also then need to, I guess, show yourself as being quite human. And so I guess for me, um, you know, being kind of open in terms of the things that you're not the expert about. That's why I've got fantastic teams who are the experts. You know, what my job is to do is to lead this organization, to make some decisions, to ensure that actually we're all heading the same way and we're delivering what we're supposed to be doing. But I don't get that right every day and I think being open and honest about that is quite key because I think if you're sort of seen as someone who can't admit when they get something wrong or actually isn't relatable and human I think maybe you lose people and you lose your kind of staff support or people outside the organization and so I think it's then having that kind of leadership that people can kind of engage with you and and ultimately you're just presenting yourself as someone who is very clear about what they want to achieve and is ambitious about doing that and can bring a team and people with you and I think that you know for me sort of 
where I would struggle and sort of not see such strong leadership is where people then can't bring their teams with them and, and have a lack of sort of purpose in what they're trying to achieve. And I think that sometimes, probably because of the weight of the responsibility that sort of some leadership positions bring, try and almost do do everything and profess to be able to do everything brilliantly mm. and no, no one is capable of doing that and I think if you can have a kind of open honest relationship actually you kind of build that trust better. Yeah I mean you touched on it a bit then I guess not everybody's perfect you can't as a leader know know absolutely everything and what, therefore it's important to have a good team but just thinking about you personally how do you or how are you trying to approach your own development as a leader is there anything insight you can share around what you're doing from that point of view? A lot of it for me comes from taking kind of drawing inspiration from other people and so you know that partly is other people in the sector but often outside of the sector so you know I'm lucky that I have had I guess sort of mentors and people who I've been able to work with or just bounce ideas or have conversations with and so some of them have been our trustees or our chairman who is incredibly insightful and you know doesn't come from the voluntary sector so I think that's helpful I think them being being clear with everyone around you that actually development should be something that we all are able to invest time in and and make a priority and I mean that's something I think I mentioned earlier but that we're doing across the organization so the whole of the director's team have just done a two-day course leadership development training course so it's a I think continuing to do those and look for those opportunities good um I tend to read quite a lot so I try and read some different books whether that be around sort of leadership or um, strategy or business but I think for me I then sort of draw in um, you know ideas or things that we could do differently or I could do differently um, so what I think was the last great what was the last good book you read well I'm reading Michelle Obama's book are moment. you yeah my wife's training to uh, do the marathon and she's listened to it on audiobook and she said it's been the best one she's listened yeah, to because her voice as well good. she said it was amazing yeah yeah, yeah 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 so I think that's good and I think you know I've read some other books around sort of views of different companies or organizations or being in them and I think you know you hear lots about um, some of the sort of Silicon Valley companies and how they've mm. done things but actually then reading behind the, some of those headlines is then quite interesting. What was yeah. the last book you read Kenneth? You find the dog on every um, page or? <laughs> What's that one? Spot, Spot the, the dog. dog. <laughs> yeah probably. Um, I So actually after my wife was talking to me about Michelle Obama I started uh, an Audible account I used to have one previously so I've started listening to and I'm really rubbish at remembering the names of books so I'm having to go to my Audible now but it was one that had been dropped into a few conversations over the last couple of years and then I heard it again recently and I was like I must listen to that building the this chimp, one up what's it going to be? The Chimp Paradox Oh, heard of oh I've Steve heard Peters. of that yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. someone so recommended that to me yeah. yeah the acclaimed my oh there you go it's, it's playing, playing now playing. To look on that. We're have a listen. Um, but it's all about kind of breaking down the psychology behind that chimp in our minds that, you know, kind of says to us, have that, go on, have that other beer or whatever it might be. Um, and so it's, quite, it's been quite interesting. So on the commute in, I've just been listening to that. But for me, it's mostly about podcasts. All about the I podcast. Think, I think I get a lot of my learning and stuff and probably should read more. What about you? Uh, the shoot, last book shoot I read 86. was about... No, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I finished it last week. It was um, the the guy that set Nike up, Nike, okay, uh, and about how he did that and fought against Adidas's control of the market and ultimately, no spoilers, but he, he did okay. He did all right. all right. No mention of any kind of sweatshops or anything like that. He doesn't no. talk about that. But uh, it was good. It was good. Yeah, it was interesting. Quite a driven individual. Good. Oh. Good. Reminds me of uh, you, Kenny. <laughs> I don't know about that. So I guess 
you know, we're probably kind of reaching the end now. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Hilary. I hope no, we haven't taken mu- too much of your time. We didn't actually say where we were, did we? We've been to this place a few p- few times. Third time. I think Third we have time. to leave a, a golden microphone here, don't we, for <laughs> them to hang behind the bar. I'll tell you what, there's certainly a few people that have got some flexible working around here <laughs> if those guys at the bar <laughs> are anything to go by. We might have uh, been hearing that early on. But Hilary, we tried to do at the end of the each interview a few kind of quick-fire questions just to, to give you... Unfortunately, you have seen these beforehand, so you've got an idea. Although you probably didn't read that far down, did you, to be honest? Not sure I did actually. I'm trying <laughs> to look sure at what you've did. got at the end of that note. <laughs> <laughs> All go right, on. We'll keep them hidden. Go on. Throw some curveballs in there. So I'll go first. So if you could place an ad across Facebook, across the world for one day, what would it say? It would have to be, and obviously an Alzheimer's Research UK oh, campaign. On, on brand. Um, but I think that, that you know, our, our main message, which is that dementia is caused by disease has to be the, the, the biggest message because that's what people don't yet understand. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. All right. Uh, Very on brand. Second question. What is the one bit of advice that you've been given in your career that sticks with you? would probably be from a former boss uh, and it would be around resilience. So I think that for me, I think I'd probably built up my ability to be pretty resilient in in lots of ways but I think that certainly helps with the role that I've got and and stops me maybe getting caught up in the sorts of things that could quite easily sort of bog you down or or pull you away from the reason that you are in the role that you are can you just can you tell us a little bit more about how you built that resilience because I'm sure there's the three people who are listening like it's resilience seems to be a topic that comes up again and again right in a lot of a lot of what we hear and see can yeah. You, can you, can you so I think that, um, is, and again, it's one of those sort of slight buzzwords, I guess, where it means different things to different people. But for me, it's about, I guess, the ability to then cope with lots of different things going on. It's yeah. a sort of emotional resilience to be able to maybe take take yourself emotionally out of some of the situations that you're maybe faced with. And, and you need to be able to do that to make good, clear, strategic decisions. Mm. Um but doing that in a human way, I'm not talking about sort of taking all kind of behaviours or emotions out of everything. But I think that certainly helps understanding when you can step back mm. and that it's okay to do that. Mm. Uh, and understanding that you can't then fix everything. And I yeah. think for me, that's probably been, it's probably one of my sort of development areas, I guess, in that, you know, I'm someone who quite likes to be able to sort of solve problems and get, and actually you've got to learn that you, you can't always do that and you can't, can't always fix everything. And actually it's not necessarily always your role to be able to try mm. and fix everything. Mm. Um, but I think that if, if you can learn to be a bit more resilient, I think that certainly does help you maybe focus on the things that you need to do. And so maybe it's, it's almost that sort of trying to tell yourself yeah. Um, you know why why you're there and what your what your sort of purpose is to try and do in your role, and I think if you can co- sort of try and keep doing that, I think that for me that's been really helpful. Yeah. Um, but I think you know because a lot of people in in these sorts of jobs and across the across the voluntary sector are juggling all sorts of different things at any yeah. one point, you know internally, externally. You know I think that you know the 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 roles that we have in this sector are fantastic and incredibly diverse and. And I do think that actually a lot of people understand the responsibility that we probably put on people at every level within our organisations. And so 
equipping people to be able to cope with the different situations or the roles that they're in is really key. Mm. And actually, they talk about that in that book that I've just referred to about kind of the the monkey, the human. He basically splits the mind into three. So there's the monkey, the human, and the computer. So computer is kind of everything that you know. The human is the rational side, and the monkey being that kind of side that says, oh, you need to worry about this. And then kind of talks about how you should use each of them to kind of offset and play each other up and basically put this monkey back in the box. The monkey is you after a couple of Jaeger bombs, <laughs> isn't it? That's what that is. It's worth reading. Go on then, James. Last one. Last one. So our podcast is all focused around people doing good things. Doing more f- good things, right? Doing, we'll just start with one. All right. We'll start, do one. True. Listen to this and then. Uh, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual you've met on your journey who has done something good for others? Um, so one inspiring woman I've met is a girl called Nimco Ali. Okay. Who set up a charity called Daughters of Eve. And she has just this week got a bill through Parliament around female genital mutilation. Mm. And so she was a child refugee from uh, Somaliland in mm. I think the mid-90s. And she was cut herself. And she, I think, since sort of growing up in, in Bristol, then led a real campaign, literally starting with you know, talking about this in her family, which I think is something that's never been done. And has taken this to being a, you know, a big charity. She's got people, sort of celebrities, politicians behind her. Wow. She is pretty bonkers. She's an absolute force. <laughs> um, but she's just got people talking about this, which a couple of years ago just wasn't the case. And so she is on it. You know, she was with Theresa May, I think, earlier in the week talking really? about it. She's got all sorts of people supporting her. But she's someone who is just, as a sort of individual, yeah. an incredible inspiration, I think, to a community who just hadn't had that voice voice heard and for something that was still still happening in the UK let alone in in parts of Africa so she's someone you should that's amazing certainly have, have a look, look at, at if you've not, look you look at, not yeah. come across yeah, huh? that's pretty impressive yeah yeah not, not a lot compared to her she sounds um, inspirational brilliant well Hilary thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it thank you James any final thoughts no it's been really good season uh, three is on underway we are underway Exciting. We were just talking about, before we started, that season three, we were trying to think of famous threes. So far, we've came up with three musketeers, three little pigs, and a triangle. A triangle. <laughs> that was mine. <laughs> have, you got, have you got anything more inspiring than that? Because at the moment, <laughs> we're struggling. It's quite a hard one, isn't it's it? It's quite hard, yeah. Oh, what else maybe by the end of the series, you'll have... Uh, all right. Or well, maybe tweet in the answers. If Let's anyone else has got any, uh, yeah. any suggestions of famous threes, do more yeah. good pod yeah. on Twitter. What are you up to for the rest of this week? What you got on? Back to the office Wednesday. We're just kind of run, ramping up to, to Virgin Money London Marathon uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time. Of so, um, yeah, lots, lots going on around that. Um, but yeah, what about yourself? Uh, well, I've got a big meeting down with you tomorrow. Oh, you have got a big work meeting. You're capacity. coming down. Yes. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. I'll make sure I give you a hard time. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Hilary. Thank you, James. Nice See one. you all soon. See you for the next Cheers one. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. So James just wrapped up another fantastic episode, if I don't say so myself. How did you find it? It's all right, wasn't it? <laughs> anyone wants to kind of follow up and actually enjoy this thing where can they find us well we're on twitter kenneth at do more good pod instagram at do more good pod have we gone multi-channel and even gone to youtube we have but you can find all those videos on the website do more good.uk and if you want to contact us by email please use contact at do more good.uk you were good (laughs) 
you, you were better. 